Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, and yeah, we're going we're gonna to be in chapter two. And listen, here's the deal. I preached on this a while back, and, and it's really important to me that we know that the wise men do not belong with the nativity, okay? And I, I'm going to keep saying that because we're just, we're theologically off there, Okay. Um, and, and obviously, this is going to be one of those things that definitely does not keep us out of heaven. But if you, if you would bear with me and just, you know, move the wise men further down the mantle or really, realistically, we don't know what time of year it was that they came per se. So it could have been Christmas time. Um, and I love the view from heaven where there is no time and you're kind of seeing everything superimposed over itself. But the truth of the Magi are a couple things. Number one, they were not kings. Number two, they came when Jesus was two years old. Okay? So, and, and they're, you know, I'm going to read some scripture. Trust me. He's like, is this guy going to read the Bible? Or is this kind of like a, one of those other kind of churches? No, we are going to read the story of the wise men. And I love doing the story of the wise men after Christmas. Because, because in reality, there are oftentimes things that the Lord calls us to wait for. There are things that, um, you know, we are a people of little patience. We have a lot of things. We do not have a lot of patience. I probably have the least patience of anybody in this room. You can ask anybody on our staff. And, uh, and it's miserable to, to not have patience. And a fruit of the Spirit is patience. And so I keep asking for more. And the Lord takes delight in developing that in me. Um, but... What I want to point out, a couple things about this, and, you know, we should just read the story just so it's fresh in everybody's mind. So from the New American Standard, only good version of the Bible, we will, hey, I heard that amen. Somebody out there is with me. Hey, bro, I see that hand. Um, I'm just kidding. And we don't die on the mountain of any translation here. So no, nobody's too worried about it, unless you have one of those new liberal ones that, like, takes out the genders and stuff. Don't do that. <clears throat> so chapter 2 says this, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And then uh, they take an excerpt out of the old prophetic writings, and they say, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child, and when you have found him, report back to me immediately so that I too may come and worship him. Wink, wink. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. 
Now, cool story, couple of things. Again, nowhere in the narrative do we pick up this idea that they were kings. Um, it's, it's assumed that that was added to the story um, as we recognize this as sort of a fulfillment of the prophecy that kings of all nations will come and bow before him. And so when we see this idea and then we kind of couple it with these people who came from the east, uh, other ethnicities, other nationalities are coming to bow um, before Jesus, um, we, we compile some things. It's important to know where our theology comes from. And uh, of, of all this move in the last like couple years of like deconstructing um, theology, I, I think a lot of it is hogwash. But I also feel like there are things that we just kind of add, and then over time it gets equated with Scripture. It gets equated with truth, and it's really sort of interpretation or addition or ornamentation or embellishment. And so it's good to get into the Word and let the Lord knock off the other stuff. So a couple quick things here. I'm glad I lost my notes because I had two pages written because um, I had twice as, I'm just kidding. I had two, I did, I have a lot of notes. And I think maybe we're not supposed to get into all that. So here's the deal. A couple of quick things about the Magi that I want to clear up. And I think it's important to understand, just like we talked about the shepherds last week, it's important to understand that two years later, Jesus is running around, little toddler boy. And here come these guys. They had been traveling for uh, months, literally months and months, uh, we don't know exactly where in the East they came from, but we know this, that the word magi, the only word used to describe these men, see, we, we sing We Three Kings of Orientar and all these other things, without really understanding that these men were wizards. They were sorcerers. This word magi, the only other place it's used, it comes from the Greek magos, and it's where we get magician from. And the only other place it's used, two places in scripture, the book of Acts, to describe Simon the sorcerer and Elymas, Bar-Jesus. Two other sorcerers. That's the description of these three men who came from the other side of the known world to bow before Jesus. They do not have a history of uh, Judeo, you know, uh, religion. They don't have this, the, the Hebrew, they don't have the laws. They don't have any of this stuff. They had prophetic writings that they had been given, probably going all the way back to um, when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego had come into Babylon, okay? And in, during exile, they'd been taken captive. And some of these godly men, like even uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, some of these folks had been promoted into places in the palace, stations around the throne, and had become entrusted by kings and royalty. And so over time, as those men are there, faithful, serving, never compromising the integrity of their faith, those prophecies that they lived by became intermingled into all of the sciences and the, the mysticism and, and the uh, astro-religions that were of the day. It's very likely that these three, they weren't three. We don't know that they were three. We just say three. Again, we add it. See what I'm doing? See what I'm doing? There was three gifts, but it was probably so much gold that they needed like 10 got, you know? Anyway, so anyway, these men were likely priests of Zoroastrianism, which is a, a constellation-based religion based on 
what we know about them and where they came from, the part of the Middle East that they came out of, um, it just puts a little bit of a different spin on who was showing up to Jesus' birth, right? Little different than our guest list here in, you know, our uber, like, creamy white, like, uh, American Christianity. It, it's just this idea of, like, okay, the shepherds, all right, we can, we can go with that. We can roll with that. But these guys, wizards, warlocks, priests from pagan religions show up in the stable. No, not in the stable. Two years later. Just wondering if you're going to catch me, okay? I'm going to keep throwing these out. By the way, this morning's message is brought to you by School of the Spirit. Can you just, can you just zoom in on that mug right there? Thank you, thank you, School of the Spirit, for correcting my theology. Um, anyway, the deal is this. These men at this time studied what would have been like alchemy. It was like, uh, it was like mystical and, and connected with the occult and paganism and all this stuff. But in a lot of ways, what then was considered magic, today we just know it as science. We just understand it as this is the way God created nature to work. And so these men, while studying and manipulating and, uh, you know, scientific laws and studying the stars and watching constellations, what they're really doing, although a little confused about it, they're in awe and admiring God's creation. And I think it's interesting that, again, the two groups that show up are the shepherds who see angels and the magi who see stars. So much of the church today is divided into two camps. It's divided into science. We believe science. I, I was talking with a guy a while back, and in order to reconcile when he got saved, in order to reconcile his like logic and reasoning-based mind with God and miracles and supernatural, he, he, was, he said, okay, I believe that every miracle that's ever happened was actually just a manipulation of science. It was actually even like the axe head floating and going all the way back to, to throughout the crazy miracles in scripture. And if you watch the Discovery Channel, you, you realize that things like the plagues could have all been set off by a giant volcanic eruption and the water that was parted could have been stopped by an earthquake further up the river. I preached on this a number of years ago. Um, but the idea is that there were natural ways that God created supernatural feats. It was God taking his creation and sort of speaking to it again, causing different things to happen in order to achieve a desired result. Now, whichever camp you're on, if you're in the science camp and you need to see a discovery documentary in order to believe a miracle, well, that's something you can take to the Lord. But if you're on the other side and you need to see an angel in order to know it's God, you, there's a ditch on that side of the road too. And so oftentimes we can get lost and caught up in the signs and wonders and the supernatural and the, well, you know, I joke about it all the time, the angel feathers and the gold dust. But the idea, saints, is that both of these parties, it's not just the ones who are out witnessing angelic hosts coming and delivering this divine supernatural message. It's also those who are watching the stars, who have their eye on nature. There is, um, there's this thing called the teleological argument for God, and it's this idea that 
creation itself speaks to the existence of God. And whether or not it doesn't have anything to do with Darwinism or evolution or any of that kind of stuff, although you can very easily tie this stuff in, but it's looking at every single element of creation down to atoms, down to electrons and neutrons and, and deciding, whoa, all of this points to God. This star points to God. Amen? These men and this um, sort of belief system that they would have been part of, it wasn't new to them. It goes back centuries and centuries and centuries um, from this part of the world. And in fact, there was one sorcerer who, if you study the Magi, there's sort of a wink back to another story about a sorcerer in scripture. And we've preached on it here multiple times. Anybody remember Balak and Balaam? Okay. And I, uh, I love this story because kind of like the Magi, you, you have a man who's everything in the world that he's in is trying to spin him to curse the people of God. See, the enemy is manipulating. That's why, that's why people get so confused. That's why atheists are so lost in, in the, the pursuit of science and nature because all of it points back to God. But like the strongholds, the principalities of education and a lot of the other powers of the air that be, what ends up happening is they take science, they take all this stuff and they forcibly try to rule God out of it. And so that's been going on for millennia. But if you trace this back to Balaam and Balak, and I'll just do this for a second because I think it's interesting. Balak is a king of Moab and he hires Balaam the sorcerer to curse God's people because he sees them coming and he doesn't want to deal with them. He says, so let's have this guy like stand on a cliff on a mountaintop and curse them. So he hires him and he goes to curse them. And I, again, this is a message in the past, but he can't do it. Every time he goes to come up with a curse, all he gets is blessing which I think is awesome. And he ends up blessing God's people and that makes Balak really mad because he like paid good money for a solid curse. And then he comes back and he's like, no, you're gonna do it and you're gonna do it right this time. So he goes up and he tries it again and he ends up again getting prophetic insight. Why? Because this man, this sorcerer was tapped into spiritual things. And whether we like it or not, spiritual things are spiritual things. The enemy comes as an angel of light, but an angel nonetheless. And what happens is when we, when we tap into this, the Lord is there too. And the Lord, I've talked to mediums, I've talked to, to Satanists, I've talked to folks who, who I re- it's another funny story. We probably don't have time for it. John, you don't tell me what we don't have time for. Doggone it. You, you know me. Just because you said that, now I have to tell the story. We have plenty of time, all right? Their vow renewal is not till two. So here's the deal, right? So I was a college kid at Zion, and I knew everything, like every college kid. And I was on Thayer Street down by the Brown University campus, and I kept passing this sandwich board that said palm readings. There was a psychic down one of these side streets and like I could not take my eyes off that sandwich board. It's like every time we were down there, I would see it. We'd go down to Antonio's or, you know, East Side Pockets or something and um, 
And I would see it, and I like it would not leave me alone. And so the Lord started speaking to me about it. I'm praying, God, why, why am I so like distracted by this sign? Like, is it, am I just supposed to be like praying against this, like, you know, occult spirit on Thayer Street? And uh, so the Lord speaks to me very clearly, no, you're to go in and meet with her. And I'm like, nah, it can't be that. Like, I, I, go to Bible, I go to Bible school. People have been kicked out of Zion for less than that. Amen. And so, and, and, and so, I, uh, so I'm like, no, nah, there's, no, there's no way. There's no way. And, uh, but the Lord's like, no, nah, you're going to go. You're actually, you're going to go in and you're going to pay the woman for her time. But she's not going to tell you your future. You're going to tell her hers. And I'm like, what? That's crazy. Okay. You know, I'm on thin ice at this school anyway. Who are we kidding? So I go in and, I, and I, I'm like kind of nervous, but I'm also kind of like faking it, you know? And I go in and I sit down and I hand her 20 bucks, which for me at the time, not just then, but now is a lot of money. And uh, I hand her 20 bucks and I said, listen, I'm not here for a poem reading. I'm here because I want to I wanna talk to you about Jesus. And so as we start this conversation, and can I tell you that I was blown away by how this woman acknowledged that her gifts came from the Lord. She talks about her mother and her grandmother and how going all the way back to Italy, um, that God had given them this ability. And, and so I'm telling her about what the Bible says about witchcraft and how important it is that she understands that what she's doing is an abomination. But yes, your gifts are from the Lord. And it was an important moment for me more so, I think, than it was for her because the Lord wanted me to reconcile something. It's that those things that we think are really far off aren't that far off. And Balaam and his donkey were not that far off. So Balak tries it for a third time. Third time's a charm, right? Okay, Balaam, get up. Get up there and do it again. Get up there, and I want to hear the hardest, most worst, most, you know, heaven-defying curse you've ever cursed. So he gets up, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but I, it's in Numbers um, uh, 24, 17. And Balaam gets up and literally begins to prophesy. And out of his mouth says this, I'm near it, though it's not close. He says, I see it, though it be far from me, but a star is rising in the east, and a scepter will come out of Judea. Balaam, a sorcerer from hundreds and hundreds of years prior, says a star will rise in the east. And, and, and he prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ over the people of God. Now, this is the background. This is the lineage of these magi. And add unto that Daniel and, and all these other guys carrying the, the prophecies of Scripture into um, those other empires and nations at the time. And you have the magi. They hear about this prophecy and they follow the star. Let's talk about that star for one second. 
the star that they followed, again, not this crazy mystical, like the heavens rolled back and there's this like, oh, it wasn't that. It was actually a star that had always been there. Everybody that studies this pretty much agrees that this star was a star called Regulus, and it was a star in the constellation of Leo, which means lion. And what the, what the wise men were actually following was a conjunction. I'm not an astronomer. I'm probably going to mess a lot of this up. Don't correct me because I don't care that much. <laughs> but there's another constellation called Virgo rising above. Now, this is what's interesting about astronomy. You can go back thousands and thousands of years and know exactly where the stars were in relation to the planet. It's like a clock that you can spin backwards and everything. Uh, scientists can follow this, and it's absolutely incredible. But the constellation Virgo, the Virgin, was rising beneath the constellation Leo, and in it was a star called Regulus in the chest of Leo, and Regulus comes from the Latin rex and means little king. They were literally following a star called Little King from Persia across the known world to show up in Bethlehem. Now, what, what astronomers can prove is that this particular star, one of the brightest in the sky, and especially at this time, at this point in history, was at 65 degrees off the horizon in Bethlehem and would have been appearing to shine directly on the city. Now, that is absolutely nuts. This is not coming from whacked-out mystical Pentecostals like me, okay? This is coming from, like, scientific-minded people who are using mathematical formulas to get back to exactly what was happening in the sky at this time. And this is what they've concluded. Now, with all that said, I want to tell you, if you're in the room this morning and you struggle with all of the supernatural stuff, you struggle with the mystical stuff, you struggle with the prophetic stuff or the healing stuff or the, the, all the stuff that doesn't have a box on the shelf of your like garage logic, this story's for you too. Even that phenomenological thing that occurred was simply nature and creation and science coming together to point to Jesus like it always has. Amen? Now, let's keep moving because uh, it gets good. So they come and they bring gifts. Now, the interesting thing, we don't know how much we see it, and so it takes place in our mind of like any sort of actual biblical evidence, but we see the little chest of gold and the little, you know, jar of this and the little container of that. And, and so in our minds, we're like, we know exactly what happened. We were there. We were eyewitnesses because of, you know, what the porcelain, you know, on my countertop says. But at the end of the day, we don't know a lot of these things. What we know is that at this point in the life of Jesus, because of Herod, because of these magi coming in and doing what any like sort of dignitaries from a foreign country would do, they would stop by 
the palace. They would stop by and see the political leader and say, hey, we're here. Here's our passports. You know, we're on business, not pleasure. You know, they're kind of doing this whole thing. We have nothing to declare or whatever. And then Herod gets a little nervous. He's like, wait, king? Did somebody say king? There's only room for one sheriff in this town. And so he decides to wipe out every baby boy, two and under. Now, at this point, Jesus and his family, Jesus, Mary, and, jo- Jesus, Mary and Joseph. That's not, that's sacrilegious. It's different. And, and so Jesus, Mary, and Joseph decide, hey, they're, they're warned too, right? So the Magi are warned in a dream, and, Je- and Jesus and his family take off and flee. They literally become refugees in Egypt, okay? I know. Migrants. It's like one of those trigger words. People are still nervous. (laughs) But the deal is, they show up there, and that would have been a really expensive trip. An expensive trip that was funded by sorcerers from the Far East. A trip that was provided for by how God saw fit to prophesy through another sorcerer hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and then more who were in exile because of Israel's idolatry, finally arriving to a handful of men who are willing to travel across the known world to go see this thing take place, to go see what this fuss was all about. So I love this, and I want to make one point real quick. If you're writing things down, get this. Where heaven makes a deposit, the world makes a transfer. Where heaven makes a deposit of its riches, the world makes a transfer of its wealth. See, a lot of times, I think we cut this in half, and we think heaven's economy exists on this plane, and the world's economy exists over here, and we're not willing to consider the points at which they intersect. But in reality, in reality, the economic cycles and heaven seasons, they need a bridge. And this bridge is, is our economy. It's, it's the ebbs and flows and we look at it and we don't relate it. We look at, you know, we look at stocks and we look at precious metals and we watch, you know, who comes into office and, and we try to follow trends. And, you know, especially if you're in the market for a house. I don't know if there's anybody in the room, but we're going to have a special time of prayer um, after, after service today. But anyway, right? So we're in this thing together. Uh, but the truth is we're all waiting for rates to come down and for, you know, uh, the market to shift and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, none of this stuff happens independently of heaven. I will say nothing happens independently of heaven. What really happens is heaven is looking for places to make deposits. And when it deposits its riches, the world, though maybe two years late, makes a transfer of wealth. And that transfer of wealth, saints, that transfer of wealth is what provides the preservation of the work of God. I think, uh, you know, if you come from some background, we, we did this on a Tuesday night a while back, 
and we really came against the spirit of poverty and um, something that has an epic stronghold over New England. Uh, you guys, there, it is not, you know, we hear spirit of poverty and we think, oh, the guy on the street corner that's like panhandling or whatever. Um, the spirit of poverty can be over cities. The spirit of poverty can be over the wealthiest people that you know. The spirit of poverty can be over folks who, you know, are, live in huge houses and drive nice cars. Uh, a spirit of poverty is, 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 has to do with how we conduct our lives. And I think a lot of times we watch for a deposit of heaven's riches, and then we feel like we're just going to have to live off these riches. But Jesus himself, okay, son of God, right, king of kings, lord of lords, perfect lamb of God, Jesus and his family have to go on bus tickets bought by sorcerers. Appreciate it with me. Appreciate it with me. Where heaven deposits its riches, the world will transfer its wealth. We read it in Romans, don't we, that all of creation cries out for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because when we manifest, we're, we're revealing a deposit of heaven's riches. When we walk in the spirit and not in our flesh, we are manifesting, we're expressing, we're a demonstration of the revelation of heaven's deposit. Okay, the spirit of God has been deposited in your life. This side of the room is wicked lit this morning. This side, I'm not so much about. I think it has to do with Esther. I'm just going to ask you to move over here. I'm almost like, am I going to have to separate you? I'm just kidding. I just need both of you two, one on each side. Yeah. And then just start the wave. Okay. I'm wrapping this up. Some of you guys are like, Zach, it's just the end of the year and I've got a cookie hangover and can we just move on? Yes, we can. I'm wrapping this up. But God will, God will preserve his purpose in you. The Jesus born in you. The Jesus conceived in you. Troy Bourne wrote a song, a number he's incredible anointed worship leader in our church. And uh, he wrote a song a number of years ago. And the song was, May Jesus Be Born in You. See, this whole story of Mary and Joseph, it's a picture, it's an example for us because of what heaven wants to conceive in us. And what heaven conceives in us, it will be provided for, it will be protected We've got to overcome the mindset, the bondage of lack. It has to be broken off of us. So much of that fear, even if we're not logically making the connection, so God may be calling you to walk out of your job, not like dishonorably, you know what I'm saying? Like put your notice in or whatever, um, unless maybe you just should walk out, you know who you are. But God may be calling you to do something like that, and, and you're wrestling not with the will of God in your life, but the provision for it. And oftentimes, we end up reluctant or hesitant. We end up taking a step back where we're supposed to take a step forward because the logic doesn't work, because the math doesn't work. Our awe and our wonder is in where's it coming from instead of who's it coming from. Where heaven 
makes a deposit, the world will make a transfer. Okay? There's so many stories of that, I can't even begin to go there, so I'm going to tell you my last point instead. This is my favorite one. So Persia, in around the time when Jesus was born, circa zero. Persia was actually, the Persian Empire actually had just conquered the Medes and had ruled, and that dynasty actually was adjacent to the Assyrians. And so when Persia takes the Medes, they actually sort of acquire, via their victory, the Assyrian Empire as well. Now, again, we're working back 400 years here from the time of Jesus. Persia, the Medes, and the Seleucid kind of dynasties in there too. And then you go back again, and it's Assyria. And you know who Assyria had not long before that taken over was Babylon. And if you remember who Babylon was, Babylon, Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon was Hezekiah parading the enemy through the temple, through the treasury, through the armory, showing off all the goodies. Babylon came in and sacked the temple of God. The first exile, going back to when Jerusalem, uh, not Israel, but Jerusalem and uh, Judah, and some of Benjamin were taken into captivity. The temple is looted and everything was taken out and carried over to Babylon. All the gold and all the utensils. We preached a message in here a couple months back and we talked about the dishes. Remember, we talked about the cups. Well, the gold would have been part of that. And so would frankincense. And so would myrrh. See, frankincense was a part of that incense concoction that was burned on the altar of incense that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And myrrh was a key ingredient in the anointing oil, the holy anointing oil that was used by the priesthood. And as I'm reading this for the very first time, you know, I see, I'll just be honest with you. I'm somebody, I read this story and I'm more distracted by the fact that there are two R's in the word myrrh than, than like, <laughs> where did the myrrh actually come from? I'm like, seems a little extra. Did we need two R's? Come on, myrrh. I'm like, am I a magi or a pirate? I don't know. So, so if you, if you see this from heaven, not in a timeline, but down, every picture laid on top of the other one. What we're seeing is that a new high priest shows up, and to him is restored everything that had been taken. God never cared how much gold or how much frankincense or how much. That wasn't the point. The point was access. The point was to make a point, to make a statement that everything the enemy carried off, Jesus brought it back. Would you stand with me this morning?
So the gold, symbolic of wealth. The myrrh, symbolic of anointing. And the frankincense, a picture of worship and intercession. All things lost to the people of God. For 400 years, they had been lost to the people of God. Impoverished, living in bondage. And even, even after Ezra and Nehemiah and the temples rebuilt and the city walls are rebuilt and they start to migrate back, even then, a mindset of poverty, of greed, we see it. We see it. And I believe that to this day, Jews are plagued. Orthodox Jews are plagued with the lack, not because they don't have money, but because their mind operates from a place of lack. Why? Because Jesus brought it back. They're missing the anointing. So much of the church today is missing the anointing. So much of the people of God, the anointing is, is absent from this, from this picture. Why? And we're operating instead with talent, with skill, with degrees and education. We log our hours. We watch our YouTubes. We, we go to our Bible schools and seminaries and we earn everything that you're supposed to earn. But it's all from a place of what can I earn instead of what has heaven deposited? You see, that myrrh, it was never the Persians. It was never the Medes. It was never Assyrians' myrrh. It was never Babylon's myrrh. The anointing the world has counterfeited and stolen belongs to the people of God. It belongs in the house of the Lord. And it will be brought back. And when our eyes are on Jesus, it will be restored to the bride. And the frankincense frankincense that stuff that you set it on fire and the smoke fills our nostrils first goes up blesses the Lord speaks of our sacrifice of our offering it speaks of our desire to please him intercession and worship who are we if we're not worshiping? Who are we? There's the problem right there. We can, we can get back into wealth. We can, you know, there's churches now that have like obliterated all of that, turned it into prosperity preaching and also there's stupid hogwash and, and it's all about the gold, but it wasn't. It was actually never really about the gold. That's why it doesn't matter how much there was because however much there was would have been enough. They can have the anointing. And how many of you know that when believers are anointed, there's power there. But if you don't have the intimacy of a relationship to back it up, if you don't have a lifestyle of worship, if you don't have... A, a, a schedule that is filled, brimming with intercession to the Lord, those other things are going to get messed up. 
It's Jesus that brings it back. It's when he's born in us that these things that the world has taken begin to be transferred back, providing, protecting, anointing, and intimacy. Saints, I wanna encourage you as we go into 2024, don't let the world have what heaven meant for you. So God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of Jesus, you have restored to your people all that's been lost. Because of Jesus, we now have the spirit of reconciliation, not just with each other, but we have it with you and we have it with what was always meant for us, but what we've lost along the way. And so God, I pray for a reigniting of the anointing. God, for the men and women of God in this room who carry that mark, that, that streak, that stain of oil that will never go away. God, I pray that it would be reignited. Lord, that it would catch with the fire of heaven again. God, I pray for those who, who um, are, are bound up in that mindset of lack. No matter how much comes in at the end of the week or the end of the month or the end of the year, there's this, there's this idea that, that it's never enough or we can't get by or we've got to just grab, grab, grab and hold. God, I thank you for the folks who live with that open hand and are a constant statement of, of your goodness and your faithfulness and your generosity. I thank you, God, for the way that you have always been faithful to provide for every purpose that you've given. Lord, help us to walk in that same freedom. And God, for the frankincense. Lord, bring us back to worship. Not just Sunday after Sunday, but hour after hour, minute after minute, car ride after car ride, argument after argument, frustration after frustration. Bring us back to worship. Bring us back to intercession. Bring us back to intimacy with you. Thank you, Lord. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.